Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of farming practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a hot, hot June 23rd, 2022, and we're talking about some, I think, some relatively minor or modest updates in the neutropenic fever space. Um, the first article I'm going to talk about, and both of these articles came across my uh, my Twitter timeline. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently um, who had who had joined Twitter and was was talking about how uh, she found it a very um, really a nice uh, nice space if you if you find the right you know if you follow mostly oncology pharmacists that it's a a very helpful and informative follow and um, I found that to be true certainly. And uh, and so both of these articles I'm going to talk about um, I saw on my Twitter timeline and are uh, were interesting I, I think to read and um, you know it's my podcast so if it's interesting to me I'm going to talk about it uh, and there hasn't been a whole lot going on lately uh, either since uh, the end of ASCO so the first I'll talk about was published in Lancet Hematology uh, spelled with an A and this is short versus extended treatment with a carbapenem in patients with high risk fever of unknown origin during neutropenia. A non-inferiority open-label multicentre randomized trial. Uh, so this was a non-inferiority trial. They uh, enrolled um, 280 or so patients. Oh, <laughs> by the way, um, if you are my current APPE student, uh, and we talked uh, at the journal club, um, uh, I said, oh, I talked about this on the podcast. That I had a student uh, do a journal club on an uh, article I talked about uh, in the ASCO wrap-up. And I was like, I talked about this in the podcast. Did you listen? I was like, no, I didn't know you did that. So anyway, this this article uh, I assigned to one of my students to talk about tomorrow on Friday. So I'll find out in the morning, uh, you know how it, you know if the lesson was learned and they're listening to the podcast. Anyway, uh, so 280 patients randomized one to one to either um, early versus extended treatment with a carbapenem. Now this is interesting. All right, so in the neutropenic fever treatment space. Not a whole lot has changed in like 20 years uh, until the last couple years. And in the Neutropenic Fever 101 podcast I did, uh, I think last summer, uh, we talked about the How Long study. I think it's the How Long study that looked at basically if you are, if you have febrile neutropenia and you start appropriate broad spectrum antibiotics, if you are afebrile for 72 hours, I think is what they did. If you're afebrile for several days, but still neutropenic, it appears to be okay to stop antibiotics, whereas the, the old standard uh, is you continue antibiotics until you're afebrile for two days and ANC is above 500. It's not an or. It's both of those criteria have to be met. No longer neutropenic, no longer febrile. That's kind of a very simple way that neutropenic fever has been treated for, for years. So there's an emerging body of evidence that if you are afebrile, even if neutropenic, you can probably safely stop antibiotics with careful observation. This is a slight departure from that. This is looking at uh, a carbapenem for, uh, uh, let me see, for th at least, let's see, they received it in the short term for 72 hours. That could be 60 to 84 hours. So basically three days or an extended period, which was at least nine days or until they were afebrile for five days or neutrophil recovery. So either afebrile for five days or uh, your neutrophil count recovered. Um, so three days versus at least nine days, all right? And we'll get into the details uh, on, the on the next page, as if you can see my, my scattered notes here. Um, 
So they were using either meripenem 1 gram Q8 or imipenem psilostatin 500 Q6. By the way, whenever I hear imipenem, I think of there's a Scrubs episode, the old sitcom, where there is a, a patient who develops uh, anosmia or lo a loss of smell while on imipenem. And uh, Dr. Dorian JD spends a lot of time doing basically a drug information question, trying to find if imipenem can cause loss of smell. And you bet, you bet your butts that I did the same thing as a pharmacy student when I saw that. And if you did the same thing, then you are my kind of person. All right. I mentioned 280 people. These were high-risk neutropenic fever, meaning that they were hematologic malignancies. 73% were uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplant patients. So that's that's high risk. And high risk means ANC below 500 for at least seven days. That's high risk. This is my very first research uh, I ever did. Uh, it's my PGY2 project, my first publication, best publication to date. Uh, still. All right, so they have your 280 patients randomized one-to-one, -one, and uh, so they're getting either the short treatment for three days or the extended period of treatment. Now, if you are getting the antibiotic for three days, if you're randomized to that arm and you are still febrile, the protocol says you stop the carbapenem. So what that means is you could have somebody post-transplant, an allotransplant patient on immunosuppression, for example, who spikes a temp, they get put on their meropenem, uh, and their temperature goes from 100.5 to 101.5 to 102.5 in successive days. Their fever is not just, uh, not only are they still febrile, but the fever is worsening. Per protocol, they have to stop the carbapenem. Compared to the other arm, that same person would have continued the carbapenem for at least nine days uh, uh, and until the ANC uh, recovered or they were febrile for five days. So that was, that was the, that's the breakdown here, all right? So when we look at our baseline demographics, there are a lot of ton of differences here. I think the key thing is 70% of these folks were transplant patients, 60% total were allo patients. So, so yeah, very very high risk. Um, the the uh, duration of neutropenia on average looked to be 14 days, 13 days in both arms. Interestingly, I've not seen this, and if someone does this or knows data behind it, tweet it to me. Um, half these patients, more than half, had candida colonization, and I don't know that I've ever seen that tested for. I'm familiar with MRSA Nares colonization and rectal VRE colonization, but not candida colonization. Um, so anyway, uh, we have a couple uh, analyses to talk about here. So one is the intent to treat analysis. That's whoever is randomized, right? The intention is you're going to get three days, you're going to get nine days, right? And there's the per, per protocol. And the first thing you notice if you look at the consort diagram, the consort diagram is that like PowerPoint, PowerPoint smart art thing that has how many people dropped out and when they dropped out and why, is that 40 folks are left out of the per protocol analysis compared to 16. And they're randomized one-to-one, -one, so ideally those numbers would be similar if you've got a fair, a fair kind of per protocol analysis. And the per protocol is looking at who actually got the three days and who actually got the nine days of the carbapenem. And half of these 40, 21, uh, did not actually get only three days of carbapenem because um, they resume antibiotics against protocol. And in, in 18 of these, it was because of fever and hills. <laughs> I think that means fever and chills, uh, but it says fever and hills. And one was clinically unstable. Um, so some of the physicians, I think rightfully so, were clearly... Um, not willing to stop an antibiotic after three days in someone who is, in one case, clinically unstable, but also still febrile after three days. You know, you hope people will defervesce within a day or two, but certainly by three days, you would hope that they would defervesce for high-risk neutropenic fever. All right, so the primary outcome here is a composite of treatment failure, which was defined of 
uh, occurrence of either a microbiologically documented uh, or suspected carbapenem-sensitive infection, right? So if they grew, let's say, MRSA, that's not treatment failure because the carbapenem doesn't cover MRSA, right? Um, recurrence of fever from day four until day nine, okay, so they have a fever again, uh, septic shock, respiratory insufficiency, or death from any cause uh, until their ANC is above 500. So reasonable composite endpoint, but a composite endpoint uh, nonetheless. So this is a non-inferiority study, and the margin here is 10%, and so... Uh, our differences in treatment failure were 19.4% with a short treatment versus 15.3% with extended treatment. That's a difference of 4%. Our 95% confidence is negative 1.7 to 9.7, which does not get to 10. So it does meet the primary endpoint of, of showing uh, non-inferiority of short treatment. However, there is, uh, you know, uh, when you look at all-cause mortality, it's 3.5% in the short treatment and 0.7% in extended treatment. That is also uh, non-inferior with a very uh, short competence interval. Uh, and if you look at the per protocol analysis, uh, so who actually got three days and who actually got um, 14 days, you can see that uh, things don't look, uh, they look a little bit worse here. So in the per protocol analysis, 23% in the three-day group had treatment failure compared to 16%. Um, in the per protocol who got the nine days and that was not non-inferior. It actually did uh, suggest that it could be inferior this long course uh, or the shorter course of treatment. So the, the author's conclusion here is that although we met uh, our primary endpoint, uh, secondary analysis says that maybe there's more all-cause mortality in these folks who only got three days uh, who are persistently febrile. So um, we have, I think, appropriately in the veins of antibiotic stewardship started looking at how can we give fewer, um, you know, days of antibiotics to people who are neutropenic and were febrile but are no longer febrile. And uh, this study, uh, I think, asked a good question um, and they answered it, I think, which is that if you're still febrile, you still probably need antibiotics if you are neutropenic. Um, so something that... Um, I would not have thought of doing this study, but them doing this study uh, provides uh, nice information, I think, for us to know. And I think it's worth talking about uh, and sharing. Okay, so the next study is um, a real-world febrile neutropenia rates in same-day versus next-day pegfilgrastim after myelosuppressive chemo. Um, if you're listening to this, there's a darn good chance you listen to the same-day pegfilgrastim pod I did sometime last year with Ollie McBride. It's the most popular podcast on this, uh, on this channel. So this is a real-world analysis uh, from a, uh, it's a retrospective electronic chart review from a single center in, in Utah. And uh, uh, we'll go through this. This is, a, this is a good one for a learner to, to do. So if you're a student uh, or a trainee and you want to improve your critical literature appraisal skills, something I hear a lot from listeners who reach out to say they enjoy the pod is, is listening to help me get better at reading studies. Go ahead and turn this off, look at the show notes, and read this, and then come back to it and see if you see the same issues uh, that I see. So it's a retrospective study, and of course, retrospective studies should always make us do nothing more than a shoulder shrug and say, hmm, that's interesting, I think. Um, first thing I notice here, it's a retrospective study, of course, um, but they excluded people if they had pancreatic cancer or sarcoma or received modified fulfurinox. 
that's not explained uh, why, right? Or if they see their peg full grass stem late, which I understand that exclusion. But why did they exclude people with pancreatic cancer or sarcoma? When, as we'll see, they included pretty much anybody else treated in their clinic. It's a wide variety of cancers. I don't understand why just that disease state, sarcoma, which gives higher doses of anthracycline and pretty high dose of ifosfamide, and, uh, and those who received modified fulfurinox, why uh, that was uh, excluded uh, as well. Um, so anyway, they are looking at uh, these patients and uh, did they have neutropenic fever and were there differences in febrile neutropenia, whether they got their peg full grastum on the same day, so uh, a biosimilar peg full grastum, or whether or not they got peg full grastum 24 hours later and looking at neutropenic fever rates. Uh, they used exclusively one biosimilar in this clinic and um, you'll see that the if you look in the potential uh, uh, conflict of interest that the company that makes this particular biosimilar the author they supported the study and the author was a consultant or advisor with this um, company and received research funding and there was also a medical writer that was hired and a, a st statistical consultant um, was also uh, hired by the drug company so um, the drug company spent a lot of money for this study to, or spent some money, I don't know if it's a lot, they spent some money supporting this study uh, coming out and I'm sure uh, they had a reason to do so because they show in here that the rates of febrile neutropenia are similar between same day and next day um, filgrastum. And we look at our baseline demographics, the meat, the average age here is 60. We've got uh, mostly breast cancer, 60% breast cancer, 20% lymphoma, and then a hodgepodge of smaller numbers of ovarian prostate, endometrial, cervical, esophageal, lung. Really low, only, really? You only got three people in lung cancer in your study? It is Utah. All right, that makes sense, right? Not all, If you look at the tobacco smoking rates, to, oh, Utah is the lowest uh, tobacco consumption rate in the nation. So, that, okay, that, that makes sense. I, I rescind my question mark. All right. They break things by chemotherapy regimen as high risk or intermediate risk. A couple things here. Dose dense AC is listed as high risk, and that was two in five people in this study got dose dense AC. Uh, this, so the NCCN guidelines classified dose dense AC as a high risk regimen. Traditionally, high risk regimens mean there's a 20% risk of neutropenic fever. This is not true for dose dense AC. Uh, we don't see. Um, you don't see 20% neutropenic fever with AC, okay? Uh, it, you can go back and look at the, the, the Citrone study, the famous dose-dense AC study. It's 2% neutropenic fever in that study. The guidelines classify as high risk to denote to clinicians that dose-dense AC requires growth factor support. It's not to prevent neutropenic fever, really. It's to, so you can give it every two weeks. So the counselor, so your ANC is above 1,500 two weeks later. So you can give the chemo uh, a week earlier to help kill more cancer cells and cure more folks. So it's really not a high risk of neutropenic fever, okay? You can look at the data, it's not. Now for their intermediate risk, the most common regimen was RCHOP, about 20% of patients. Now RCHOP is intermediate risk for your average age patient, maybe, maybe not your average age patient. But if you're 65 and older, it is high risk. And the old ASCO guidelines show this. And you can go look at those ASCO guidelines. You can look at the study of RCHOP in people over the age of 65. And the risk of neutropenic fever is like 21% or something, right? So anyone over the age of 65 in RCHOP should get growth factor prophylaxis. Now, in the intermediate risk, 
So backing up, the guidelines would say if you're high risk, everyone should get growth factor prophylaxis. If you're intermediate risk, consider it based on risk factors. We don't know what those risk factors would be. We don't know how many of these people getting intermediate risk are over the age of 65, how many have concomitant COPD. Uh, we don't know that, all right? And so this is the nature of a retrospective study. You're gonna have, you can't control for that sort of stuff, all right? Uh, and we've got 117 in the same day group, 180 in the next day group. All right, uh, when we look at our incidence of febrile neutropenia, well, cycle one, it's 6% in same day versus 6.7% for next day. So great, right? Well, this is seven patients in one arm and 12 patients, really small sample size. You can't take a lot from this. Um, there's no mention of uh, any people who got maybe antibiotic prophylaxis. We do that a lot for our elderly RCHOP patients. Uh, we'll give them, you know, levofloxacin to prevent neutropenic fever. Um, that's not mentioned in the study. Uh, and to further support my, uh, my uh, critique that some of these high-risk patients are not high-risk and some of these intermediate-risk patients are not intermediate-risk, here are the rates of neutropenic fever uh, after cycle one uh, in the high-risk group by same day and next day, 4.3%, 4.3%. Pretty low rates of neutropenic fever for high-risk chemotherapy, 4%, 4%. Now the rates of neutropenic fever after cycle one with intermediate risk is 8.5% and 10.8%. So clearly the intermediate risk was higher risk and the higher risk was lower risk for neutropenic fever despite getting growth factor. Um, and so in, in that intermediate risk, there was actually numerically more neutropenic fever with the next day pegfulgrastim. Uh, you know, would be wonderful to know um, how, what the rates are of, say, elderly RCHOP in these arms. Those would be the things you'd want to know before making any uh, significant conclusions. The other thing that's kind of odd here in our discussion, if febrile neutropenia was diagnosed based on, root, on the treating physician's experience, uh, it should also be noted that not every patient included in this study had data for absolute neutrophil count available for the reported febrile neutropenia as ANC testing was not always executed during the febrile neutropenia episode in this real-world setting. I have never encountered somebody with a fever after chemo where we did not try to get their ANC or send them to, you know, if you're febrile and on chemo, temperature above 100.4, we refer all those folks, you know, to, to get an ANC and to be worked up because they probably need antibiotics. They do. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think this changes anything for what people are, are doing or thinking about same-day pegfulgrastim. Um, for, uh, you know, my personal opinion is to try to follow the, the filgrastin or the pegfilgrastin label and do wait 24 hours later or do the on-body injector. If patients are not going to come back the next day, I'd rather them get, you know, pegfilgrastin the same day than not get it at all. I know lots of centers have had success doing this. You can look back at the episode. There is, is probably minimal febrile neutropenia risk to doing it on the same day for most of your solid tumors. Um, uh, and this study adds to that, that, that body of evidence um, that is not prospective randomized controlled trials um, that maybe have a differing opinion on this. So anyway, two studies I think worth sharing, fun to, fun to talk about, fun to read in my opinion. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDNIP, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.